The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. We'd like to return this morning to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. The uh, wall has been completed, and now a week after the uh, completion of the rebuilding of this wall in Jerusalem, the people of God have met together to hear the reading and the preaching of the word, and they have listened to the preachers read in the book of the law distinctly, and give the sense thereof and cause them to understand the reading. And we'd like to pick up here in the aftermath of that in Nehemiah chapter 8, and we'll begin reading in verse 9. And Nehemiah and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They understood that they had no doubt sinned and come short of the glory of God. They were in contradiction to the holy, righteous commandments of the Lord, and they felt appropriate conviction. But we should never remain in that state of weeping and grieving. When we read the word of God, we should feel that conviction. We should have a change of action, a change of life that exhibits repentance. But the message of the gospel is always, as we're going to find here in verse 10, the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah chapter 8 and now verse 10. And he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions unto them from whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's what we'd like to meditate on together this morning. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, <clears throat> saying, Hold your peace, for this day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. Now, why do they exhibit this tremendous joy and celebration. Why? Because they understood the words that were declared unto them. They understood the word of God. They understood the preaching of the gospel in that day. <clears throat> and then on the second day, we're gathered together, the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests, the Levites, and Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. So now the leaders of the people were stirred up that they realized they didn't understand as much as they needed to. So they met together in a second session with the leaders of the people because they realized they needed to understand the Word of God even better if they were going to be in a position of leadership to teach others. And they found written. So the second day when those leaders met together to study the Word of God yet again, they found in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths or tabernacles. This is going to be describing the Feast of Tabernacles. That they should dwell in booths in the Feast of the Seventh 
month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch, <clears throat> fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim and all the congregation of them which were come again out of captivity made booths, made tabernacles out of just these branches and twigs and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. And also day by day, throughout the course of each of those days of this Feast of Tabernacles, also day by day from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. So the reading in the word of God, they realize uh, that if you remember, the wall was completed in the 25th day of the sixth month. And then they meet for public worship on the first day of the seventh month. And then they realize that there is a feast that's coming up in the Feast of Tabernacles that began on the seventh day and the 15th month. Okay, I mean, excuse me, the seventh month and the 15th day. Okay, so they realize that we've got a very important feast coming up. And also you realize that this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, had been <laughs> neglected among the Israelites all the way back to when they entered into the land of Canaan with Joshua. See that, verse 17? That since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, had not the children of Israel done so. Okay? Now, there were three feasts. We, we spent time recently on the radio going through Jesus Christ in the law. Those messages are on Macedonia's website. I encourage you to listen to those if you're interested. But we tried to focus on the, on the, the feasts as a portion of that uh, that series, and there are uh, five feasts and then two days of offering. You could package those together as seven if you wanted to. Uh, but there were three feasts, though, three feasts that, that all, all of Israel was commanded to return to Jerusalem to observe. And that was, first of all, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. <clears throat> Second of all, the Feast of Pentecost, which was 50 days generally close to 50 days after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but technically 50 days after the offering of the first fruits, And that all happened in the spring, okay? That, that, that happened in the first month of the Jewish year, which usually corresponds to our March and April time frame. Then you have the Feast of Pentecost that's, that's 50 days after that, right? So that's happening in the spring, 
But then there's a third feast that all of Israel was commanded to observe, and all of, all of the males, all of, all of Israel were commanded to return to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's very interesting that this scripture affirms to us that essentially they never did it, right? They never observed it. Now, back up with me to um, the commandment that every seventh year they would let the land rest to for fertilization. Obviously, we know the, the agricultural aspect of that now, but the, the reason why they were commanded to do, or the reason why they had to do that was because God said so, okay? And they, they observed that for a period of time. So that command, they observed for a little bit, but then they began to neglect it. But it appears from this passage that not one time since that generation of Joshua that entered into the land of Canaan, not one time did they observe the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as natural fleshly people, we might be able to understand why they didn't observe it, right? Uh, do I really want for a whole week? I'm not big on camping, by the way. Bethany's, he, she really wants us to be just primitive. She wants us to be primitive Baptist and, and be camping all the time. Me, I'm happy to stay in a hotel on an Airbnb, right? Um, but if I was going to go camping, I'm not doing primitive camping for seven days. <laughs> you know, give me a night, give me maybe two, but I'm definitely not going for seven days. So if I have, uh, during this time, you know, a few generations before that, they were being condemned in the book of Haggai, that you dwell in your sealed houses. You know, they had, they had nice houses, at least for that time period back then. Am I going to leave my nice sealed house to, to go get, round up some sticks, round up some olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches, and then to make a booth outside and to dwell in the midst of that booth for seven days? Well, guess what? They're sinners just like we are. And they said, yeah, I know God told us to do it, but I'm not really interested in doing that. So they neglected the Feast of Tabernacles. They neglected the Feast of Tabernacles essentially the whole time after the conquest of the land of Canaan. Now, to their credit here, they hear the reading of the word, and they say, God told us to do this, and they say, we need to do that. But I want to I get the big, the big picture here, okay? Um, the focus, the focus of the Feast of Tabernacles. <clears throat> the tabernacle is a temporary dwelling place, right? It's a tent. It's a tent that's put up in a location for a brief period of time. But the whole purpose of it being a tent is knowledge that, number one, that's not a permanent location, but also, if you think of the tabernacle, the original establishment of the tabernacle and the Old Testament Mosaic Law worship service, during those 40 years where Israel was in the wilderness and they moved from place to place to place, what they would do is they would take down the tabernacle and they would move the tabernacle to another place, right? It was, it was not permanent. It was transferable, so to say. They could easily take it down and move it and put it back up. The idea there <clears throat> is that a tabernacle 
is certainly not a permanent structure, right? And he wanted them to be reminded. The Lord wanted his people to be reminded. And, and also, as we look toward um, the Lord's second coming and the, the timing and the sequence of these feasts, if you look at <clears throat> the feast that are associated with the spring of the year, those are closely associated with Jesus' first coming, right? Feast of Unleavened Bread, he observed the Passover, he instituted the Lord's Supper. Obviously, we know the day of Pentecost is associated with the establishment of the church in Acts chapter 2, right? <clears throat> but then you have a long time period until the fall of the year in the seventh month, which was also when the Day of Atonement would happen just before this. In the seventh month, it is the last feast. It is the last required observance. And, and, and it's described, the Feast of Tabernacles is described in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 16 as the Feast of Ingathering. Okay? The Feast of Ingathering. That there, for one last time in the Jewish year, in the seventh month, for one last time, all the Jews we're going to be gathered together in one location, right? For the very last time in the year. And when you look at all the sequence of everything that's happening in that seventh month, you have the Feast of Trumpets. Anytime we hear trumpets in the Word of God, that should have your spiritual, spiritual eyes, your spiritual eyebrows being raised because we're looking for a shout and the sound of a trumpet for the Lord's second coming. Then you have the Day of Atonement, and then you have the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're going to go to Revelation 21 here in, here in a little bit to, so you can see that the ultimate fulfillment of that Feast of Tabernacles is that Jesus Christ is coming back the second time to take us to heaven to eternally tabernacle with the Lord. Okay? But think about that. Those, those spring feasts primarily have to do with the first coming of Jesus. But those fall feasts in the seventh month, they have to do with the second coming. Okay? Now, why did the Lord want his people to at least once a year for you to dwell in booths and tabernacles for a whole week? So that you would be reminded that this world is not your home. Right? That we are pilgrims and strangers here in this world and we are a long time traveling here below to lay this body down okay and that should be a reminder he has instituted this as a reminder and one of the reasons why why he, they should have observed this and they didn't which that makes sense of why maybe they struggled so much in the midst of that prosperity is if you if you get a little bit too comfortable here in the world you might get a little complacent right and, and as we've told, told you many times, the same, uh, this is described in the next chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 9, this, this uh, history of the Old Testament, the history of the nation of Israel, and they have, they have prosperity and things get, get easy and they have a little bit of peace and then they get lazy and they get complacent, they fall into idolatry, and then you have the same cycle over and over again. Well, you're going to be less prone to get comfortable and fall into that complacency if you are continually reminded that this world is not our home, right? And that's one of the main purposes of this Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Israel didn't observe it, right? They didn't observe it the whole time. And maybe that played into why 
they all the time fell into the trap of prosperity and complacency and then ultimately sin against Jehovah God, right? <clears throat> but this observance of the Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder that this world is not our home, okay? But we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we obviously have to uh, have encouragement when we deal with all of the struggles and challenges that we have to put up with here in this tabernacle, right? Now, what is your, what's your vision? What's your perspective? What, what is your focus when you are having to deal with all of the various trials and struggles and pressures and we could go on and on and on and, and you can insert your own struggle in there, right? There's a reason why the Holy Spirit allowed the Apostle Paul to describe his struggle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as a thorn in the flesh. You know, there was something specific behind that, but he didn't detail the specifics of that thorn, because you may have never, and none of you have, persecuted the church and consented to the death of apostles and some of the things that the Apostle Paul did. Uh, if it was physical afflictions, if it was poor eyesight, um, other health problems, whatever, whatever it was, I have my own opinions, and y'all have probably heard that before, but there's a reason why the Holy Spirit didn't, didn't have him articulate exactly what his thorn in the flesh was is because we can all relate to a thorn in the flesh. In, in some way, your thorn is probably different than my thorn, but we can all relate to a thorn in the flesh. <clears throat> but when that thorn is causing you a significant amount of pain here in this world, what is our focus? What, what, do we put in the forefront of our mind to allow us to press through all of the discouragement and all the weariness and all the trials and, and temptations and struggles that we have in this world? What is our focus? Verse 10. Verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Okay? The joy of the Lord is your strength. <clears throat> so when we become weary in the midst of well-doing, when we become weary in the midst of all these different trials that we have to encounter here in this world, what has to be in the forefront of our mind to, to take our mind off of the immediate pain or the immediate discouragement or the immediate suffering, what is our focus to look beyond that unto something that's going to give us strength. What's that focus? The joy of the Lord. Okay? Now that ultimate joy of the Lord is the fullness of joy that we will experience in the presence of God in heaven. Amen? That is the ultimate fulfillment of that joy of the Lord. But also, the Lord has given us in the kingdom of heaven, in the church. I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit allowed the writer Matthew in his gospel to describe the kingdom of God as the kingdom of heaven. 
Because that joy of the Lord that we will have in fullness in heaven, now we can have a foretaste of glory divine. We can have an earnest of our inheritance here where? You're not going to find that joy of the Lord out in the pig pen and the slop with the, the people of this world and the wicked of this world. That's not where you're going to find the joy of the Lord. You're going to find the joy of the Lord in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Primarily. Now, now, praise God, we can feel a special manifestation of the Spirit, and we can feel, and I hope you have, and I know I have felt, the Spirit of God and the, and the joy of the Lord in my private closet devotions with the Lord. But boy, it is just magnified so much greater in the midst of the assembly of the saints in the kingdom of heaven. That is where we primarily experience the joy of the Lord. And boy, that is what we need on a hopefully more than once a week basis to be injected with a reminder of the joy of the Lord when we get weary and when we get discouraged and when we get tired in, in well-doing and in our race I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 12. You can go ahead and be, well, we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 1 first. Go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. But when we get weary, when we get weary in our, in our race of discipleship, what is our focus? Boy, it sure isn't the things of the world. Because, I mean, I would encourage you to uh, don't, don't totally stick your head in the sand uh, in the sense of not being aware of the circumstances around you. But we cannot focus on all of the bad reports that are around us on every side, okay? Okay? And it's so easy for that to encroach on our joy in the Lord, right? What is our focus? <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Who were kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. For wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptation. I want you to understand that he's writing to them when they're in the midst of the trial. They're in the midst of the temptation. Now, I hope God has blessed you in such a way where you have remained faithful in the midst of that trial and tribulation, and then the Lord has blessed and he's, he's worked everything out in a providential way to where he gets the glory for that. And I hope that you can look back in, in hindsight and, and see the truth of this teaching right here. But this is writing to encourage people not that are able to look back and say, look how the Lord has blessed in times past. This is writing to the people who are in the midst of it to say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't see a way out. I don't know how things can get any better. It's writing to people that are down in the midst of the trenches, right? It's not, it's not victory day. It's not uh, in, in warfare. It's not the day that, that the tidings come, that the war is over and we've accomplished and defeated the enemy, right? No, we're down in the foxhole. We're down in the trenches. And what is your focus? What's your focus when you're down in the trenches? Verse six, you're in heaviness 
through manifold temptations. Not, I don't just have one of them I gotta deal with, they're everywhere. Manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, that you're in the midst of being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable, and full of glory. What he's saying here is while you're in the midst of this trial, you need to understand that God has promised he's never going to leave you. He's never going to forsake you. He's not going to ditch you in the middle of this most difficult trial. So have your vision toward the end result of this trial, which is purification, that I'm going to be a vessel that's more meat for the master's use after that. That's what Job was, was uh, hanging on to when he was in the midst of his trial, Right? He, told, he said uh, in the midst of, that, uh, of those discourses and all of his supposed friends that were, that were uh, telling him how horrible he was and he didn't repent of all these fictitious sins that, that were supposedly causing all this, he says, but when God has tried me, when, it, when, he's, when he's put me through the purification process, when he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And uh, let me see if I can... Find that really quickly because there's more language that I would like there. Uh, Job, I think it may be in chapter 23. Yeah, Job 23. Now he's in the middle of it, isn't he? You know, we are not to chapter 42 yet. <laughs> now, we know what happened. Praise God. We, we, we are so thankful that the Holy Spirit did not finish the inspiring of the, the book of Job in chapter 41, right? <laughs> he gave us 42. Well, we know that he was blessed literally twice as much in the end. Every denomination of, of livestock, of possessions, of animals, every denomination, he literally got double of it, and he had 10 more kids, okay? But we're not reading chapter 42 yet, right? We are smack dab in the middle in chapter 23. But Job was right in the middle of this, right in the thick of this, and this is why it's so important that you have bedrock resolute truths that you go back to even when you don't understand what's going on, when you don't understand that don't ever get down the rabbit hole of why. <laughs> don't ever start questioning why, 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 why. You only need to focus on who, okay? Don't ever wonder why. Now, there may come a time in hindsight where the Lord gives you the why, but in the midst, you're not going to know why. You just need to focus on the who, okay? But he was in the midst of the most severe trial that arguably anyone's ever faced on the face of this earth. But notice, he says, Lord, I can't see you anywhere, but I know you're here. I, don't, I can't see it. <laughs> I don't know how. I, behold, verse 8, behold, I go forward and he's not there. And backward, I cannot perceive him. And notice this. On the left hand where he doth work, I know he's there. I know he's working. I know that, that his providential hedge is still protecting me. But boy, it sure doesn't feel like it right now. <laughs> I can't see it. I don't know how. Uh, he's working, but I can't, I don't get it. I can't see how he's working. But, but he goes back to the bedrock truth that God will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And I know he's right there, even though I can't see him right now. On the left hand, where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. And he hideth himself on the right hand. I know he's on the right hand. He's just hiding himself right now. I can't see him. 
But what did he go back to? Verse 10. But he knoweth the way that I take. He knows. He knows exactly where I'm at. He knows exactly the real struggles of my soul that I can't properly articulate to people around me. He knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth. Do you see that future vision there? When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Why? Because that's a Bible promise. That's a Bible promise. The Lord will never waste fire. The Lord will never waste fire. It's always for the purpose of purification. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. You see, he's saying you're in the midst of the trial. You need to keep your vision on the end result of this purification. And he says in verse 8, And having not seen you love, in whom now you see him yet believing, you rejoice in the midst of this trial. You know, we're not, we're not on the mountaintop yet. We're not on the mountaintop yet. We're still in the midst of the valley. But in the midst of that valley, he says, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. There's a joy in the midst of, you know, think about the, uh, the faithful uh, Hebrew men, the three Hebrew men that refused to submit to the idolatry of Nebuchadnezzar. And the Son of Man was right there with them, with them in the midst of the fire, right? He was right there with them in the midst of the fire. And yes, they had to disobey a governmental decree. Yes, they were thrown into the fire. But can, can you imagine the joy unspeakable they experienced when they were in the midst of the fire with the Son of God, right? Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we've just concluded the uh, Hall of Faith chapter. Uh, all of these great examples of faith that trusted God in, in all their valleys and all their trials despite all obstacles. And he's now making the application to these Hebrew believers, right? You've heard about all of these Old Testament saints that live by faith, and now he tells you in Hebrews chapter 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside, <clears throat> let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Now, when you are in the midst, this, this, uh, I'm going to read verse 2 in a minute. Let's skip to verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. When you get to the point in your race of discipleship where it feels like you can't go any further, okay, what do you focus on? What do you focus on? You focus on the joys of crossing that finish line and getting that refreshing glass of water, right? <laughs> what did Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is our example. What, what did he focus on? 
You know, did, did Jesus relish, did he crave the unspeakable suffering that he endured on the tree of the cross to save us from our sins? Now, Jesus wasn't trying to get out of the cross in the Garden of Eden. But you know what? He wasn't all that fired up about having to drink the cup of God's wrath, right? He's saying, Lord, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. But he ended up drinking that, that cup all the way down to the dregs. But what was his focus when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? What was his focus, his future vision, his future focus, as he was enduring unspeakable physical suffering, but more than that, unspeakable spiritual suffering as he was forsaken by God the Father, what was his focus that made that suffering worth it? What was his focus? Just in case you get discouraged from time to time, and boy, I sure do. Do you, do you get discouraged from time to time in your, in your race of discipleship? What do you focus on when your strength appears to be waning, Right? What do, you, what do you focus on when I do get weary in well-doing? What, do what do I focus on when I do get weary and I feel like I'm about to faint in my mind? Where do I focus on? Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Now, there's something inside. Now, faith is not always going to be perfectly exhibited in an external way in our life, but there is something inside of you that is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that has a substance about it that cannot be corrupted, and it's that faith of Jesus Christ that resides inside of you that shall overcome the world. And that's not always going to overcome it perfectly in discipleship, but there is something inside of you that is more powerful. What? Primitive Baptist, oh, bless our heart, I tell you. We, we have diminished faith so much because of some false teaching of some people in some other areas but there is something so powerful inside of you that is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives you the power to overcome anything through the faith of through the strength of Christ in this world. So what do you focus on? What do you focus on when you feel like you're right about to faint? You look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith that he's going to strengthen your faith, to bless it to be exhibited in, in the midst of this trial. He's not going to let you be crushed in the midst of this. That's going to, uh, we don't have to turn here, but I want to read this for you. Isaiah, Isaiah 43. Because I'll tell you, sometimes the, sometimes the fire gets hot and the, and the rivers seem to be rising. Isaiah 43, verse 1. Now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. They're not going to totally consume you. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Why? For I am the Lord thy God. You see? God's going to be with you. Okay, now what was Jesus focused on? What was he focused on on the cross? Well, I tell you, he was not focused on all of those wicked soldiers that were, their whole job was to make him suffer. What, what, was, his, what was on his mind? 
What was on his mind from all of eternity past? Because the whole reason he was on the cross was because he made a covenant before the world began. He made a covenant before the world began that this bride, this unworthy bride full of wretched sinners, I love this bride so much, and and she's in such a bad state, I've got to go in this world and die for her. I love this bride so much that I'm going to covenant before the world even began to go, go into this world to save my people from their sins. And when he made that covenant, God has perfect omniscience. He has perfect foreknowledge. And he knew the exact, he could probably feel it in the moment, for lack of a better way of putting it. He knew the, the entirety of the suffering that he would uh, encounter on the tree of the cross. He knew all of that before he made the covenant. Now, a lot of times we make promises and, you know, there's, there's suffering, there's pain that comes later. And, you know, if I knew everything that was coming beforehand, I, I may have been a lot more hesitant to sign up for something, right? He knew everything that was coming. But you want to know why, first of all, he covenanted to do it in the first place, and then he, he fulfilled that on the tree of the cross from all the way from eternity past all the way up until when he said, it is finished on the cross. What was his focus the whole time? He looked past the suffering. Jesus looked past the suffering. And what did he look? What did he look toward? He looked toward the joy of his bride in heaven. He looked toward the joy of the Lord. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What was on his mind when he was suffering unspeakable travesties? We were, right? The bride of Christ, what? The church, the bride of Christ. And he loves his bride so much that, boy, the love of God is just unfathomable, Right? He loved his bride so much that he felt like having every single elect child of God with him in heaven for all of eternity was absolutely worth the suffering that he endured on the tree of the cross, right? How could, how could the eternal, all-wise, perfect knowledge God reach, in my mind, such a foolish conclusion, right? I mean, we're not worth that. We're not worth the suffering. We're not, we're not worth the blood of the Son. But in his mind, we were. In his mind, we were worth every single bit of suffering he had to endure. And you want to know what he focused on the whole time? He was not, he was not focused on the suffering. He was not focused on the suffering. He was focusing on the, the fullness of the joy of the Lord that I will experience with my beloved bride that I've loved. I love my bride before the foundation of the world and, and every, everything in redemptive history has been building and building and building for one purpose. And that's that bride that I predestined, I predetermined their final destination. Everything has been building for one purpose. So I bring the fullness of my bride in perfect 
holiness and perfect perfection into heaven to dwell with me for all of eternity. That's been his focus all the way from when he consented to the covenant of redemption before the world began, you see? And for that reason, Christ as, as a man, as the son of man, he felt the cat of nine tails on his back, right? As the son of man, he felt the pain in his abdomen as he gasped for breath. But as the son of God, all he saw was his bride. All he saw was the joy of the Lord that was set before him. And because of that, he was content to press through the suffering and the pain that he was in the midst of, you see? And that has to be our vision too. Now, that's part of the reason I want to tie this back in to why, you know, I'm sure y'all have all heard that phrase before, right? The joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen, right? But it's nestled randomly over here in the book of Nehemiah, right? And it's right before this observance of the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, why is that not sitting over here in Ephesians, right? Why is that not sitting over here uh, highlighted in the New Testament? <clears throat> because the Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder that points you toward that this world is not our home. And the joy, boy, we get in the kingdom of God and worship and in times of private devotion, we get a little bit, we get a sliver, we get a little bit, a little bit of joy unspeakable and full of glory, but it's through a glass darkly, Right? It's an earnest, but it sure isn't the whole inheritance yet. But those little bit of glimmers, those little bit of, of pieces of joy unspeakable that we get, that is what is our strength from day to day when we get weary. Right? And that's why it's so important that you do not neglect, not just, you need to attend public worship. Yes, you need to, but you need to have that communion with your Savior on a regular basis to where in the midst of that public worship, the Holy Spirit ministers to you and tells you you're not home yet. This, is, this world is not your home, and you need that joy of the Lord as your strength and encouragement when we get down in the midst of the, the lowest part of that valley of the trial and tribulation of affliction. What's your vision? Well, you better, you know, when Job was down, but again, what did Job focus on? If he spent his whole day looking at the boils on his body and his wife, who's telling him to curse God and die, he would not have been saying the words we saw in Job 23, right? And it's pretty easy when, when we're in the midst of pain, to focus on that boil that's all over my body, just like Joe. It's pretty easy to focus on that because that's our nature. But what we have to do is we have to have a vision that looks beyond 
the temporary discomfort. And, and we say temporary. <laughs> it's so hard for us to have an eternal vantage point, right? Because it's not temporary if it's a chronic illness that I'm going to have this pain from for the next 40 years, right? That's that's not temporal. That's not short. But you know what the Apostle Paul said? Despite all the suffering that he endured, because he looked at the sufferings of this world through the vantage point of the joy of the Lord in heaven, that's why he was able to say through the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's how he's able to say that the sufferings of this world are but a light affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that we shall receive when, uh, when our tabernacle is perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, right? It's through that vantage point of how he could look at all the sufferings that he endured and said, yes, boy, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts right now. But it's in, in the scope of eternity, it's but a light affliction, Right? You have to have that vantage point to look to look beyond that. Okay, um, let's go back to Nehemiah chapter eight for just a minute. While you're turning over there, over there let's make a little pit stop in um, Isaiah sixty-one. Isaiah sixty-one, because the vision here is that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of affliction, that we look beyond just the pain of the suffering. Okay. And what is the sustaining strength that we have in the midst of that suffering? It's the joy of the Lord. And the, and the fullness of that is in heaven, no doubt. But boy, we, we can still experience a powerful display of the joy of the Lord here in the kingdom of God in the church and discipleship, right? In Matthew 25, that's uh, talking about all these different various kingdom parables. One of those is the parable of the talents, Right? And he gave five, two, and one. And the, the people with the five and two were very faithful. And they went out and they got five more and they got two more. And he tells them, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll give you more. Enter into the joy of thy Lord. And that's not talking about heaven. That's not talking about heaven. Because that, that one person that got a talent, um, that is a servant that the master chose to entrust something with. And boy, that sure enough isn't talking about the unregenerate, right? But boy, that child of God squandered the fellowship with the master that he could have had, and he didn't enter into the joy of the Lord. Oh, no, no, no. He had to experience the judgment of his master, the judgment of the Lord. But when we faithfully endure those, those tribulations, and we take what God has given us and we use it in such a way where there is increase, there's abundance. The Lord ministers to your soul and tells you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we can experience the joy of the Lord and boy, we have many times experienced the joy of the Lord in powerful preaching of the gospel and booming singing hymns and, and annual meetings. But boy, there's nothing like the ministry of the Holy Spirit 
to your conscience and to your soul when you've, especially when you've been forced to make a real sacrifice, <laughs> when you've been forced to make the hard decision that you knew that people were not going to be supportive of, but you knew the Lord was burdening you to do that. You stood strong. You did what he called you to do. And even if other people had their feathers ruffled, the Lord ministered to your conscience and tells you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the joy of the Lord. Okay, boy, heaven's going to be great. Amen? Heaven's going to be great. But the real blessing of heaven is that Jesus Christ is going to look at you perfectly when you're finally, both your soul and your body are perfectly conformed to his image and you are going to have the fullness of you individually experiencing the joy of the Lord, right? That's heaven. You experiencing unfiltered the joy of the Lord for all of eternity, okay? And it's through those little nuggets is through those small means of encouragement that gives us the joy of the Lord here in the kingdom that gives us the strength to not faint when we get weary in the midst of well-doing, right? And, and that's why so many children of God, they remove themselves from those <laughs> repeated injections of encouragement of the joy of the Lord. And those are the people that the sheep start straying. Those are the people that start falling in their walk of discipleship. Why? Because they're not readily being injected with that strength of the joy of the Lord that you primarily get. You get it in personal devotions, but you primarily get it in public worship and special communion with the Lord, okay? Um, so, yes, we experience the joy of the Lord and discipleship here in the kingdom of heaven. But really, I, you know, I, I'm so thankful for the church. I'm so thankful for the kingdom. But if you just look, put your eyes totally on the church and the kingdom, that's not going to get you fired up all the time either, right? <laughs> There's a lot to be discouraged about in the church. Now, don't dwell on that. You need to be encouraged. Now, I want to do my best to encourage you. But it's hard to be, uh, from time to time, we have to be realistic, Okay, And if you just look at the condition of the kingdom, it's hard to not kind of mope around a little bit. So what do you look beyond is not just the immediate strength of the kingdom of heaven. You need to look to the eternal kingdom of heaven, right? And if you do that, boy, you're going to be way better citizen of the kingdom of heaven right now, right? <laughs> Isn't that funny how that works, right? If you, uh, if you focus more on the joys of the eternal kingdom of heaven, you're going to be a, a innumerably better church member here in the kingdom of heaven, right? So, Isaiah chapter 61, this is primarily speaking of Jesus Christ, but it applies of anywhere the Spirit of God is being manifested in a powerful way. Uh, Isaiah 61 and verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. <clears throat> he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then in Luke chapter 4, that's where Jesus closed the book. Now, you want to know, <laughs> side note, you want to know why in interpreting the Bible is so difficult? 
is because we know definitively that in the midst of what we have in our King James Bible, in the midst of one verse, they didn't have verses in the original text, right? But in our, in our verse, the fulfillment of that first sentence and then the rest of the verse are separated by at least 2,000 years. <laughs> and we don't know when Jesus is going to come back yet. There's a reason why he closed the book right there. Because the rest of that sentence, and the day of vengeance of our God, that's going to happen at his second coming. So, you know, I, sometimes, sometimes I start thinking I have a little bit of a handle on, uh, on prophecy and mm-hmm. thinking, uh, thinking I know what's going to happen. Then I just go over here to this verse and say, you know what? <laughs> we don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. Uh, because we know definitively that the first half of this verse and the second half of this verse are separated by a minimum of 2,000 years. Okay? Now, because this is going to happen at the Lord's second coming, boy, we, we get a taste of this here in the kingdom of heaven right here, right now, don't we? But the taste that we get is nothing compared to the fullness of it. So, verse 3, it applies to the kingdom of heaven because it ultimately applies to heaven and we get a foretaste of glory divine here in the church and here in the kingdom. But this is primarily talking about heaven. So, at the comma, verse 2, the rest of the sentence is describing the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, what's going to happen at that day? What's going to happen at that day? To comfort all that mourn. Now, we have comfort from the Holy Spirit for those that are mourning here in the kingdom of heaven, don't we? But that's nothing compared to the eternal comfort that we have in Jesus Christ as his second coming. Same, same thing. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give beauty for ashes. Praise God that God in his providence gives us beauty for ashes here in time. Right? But we also well know, boy, every ash that we make in our life is not going to be turned into beauty this side of heaven. If we, if we mess up, we burn things up. The Lord in his goodness, he may turn some beauty into ashes, but we well know every single ash is not going to be turned into beauty this side of heaven. But at his second coming, all ashes will be turned into perfect beauty, right? Now notice, this is what we wanted. The oil of joy. The oil of joy for mourning. And we mourn here in this world. And we get joy in the midst of that mourning through the strength of the Lord in the kingdom of heaven, right? You're not going to find much joy. Now, you may get like slimmers of happiness, carnal happiness in the world, but you're not going to find joy in the world. Why? Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy comes from the Lord, and it only comes from the Lord. The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness and the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. That The fullness of that is going to happen at his second coming. Okay, let's go to Revelation 21 to conclude. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You see, that's what Jesus has been focused on since before the world even began, is the beauty of that. And I love, I love the announcement in the book of Revelation where it says, the bride's ready. The bride's finally ready. And now the father gives the command of the son, go get 
Go get your darling, right? Go get your woman. Go get your bride and bring her back to where you predestinate, you predetermined for her to be before the world even began. She's fully ready. She's fully perfect. She's, she's fully um, complete. Go get your bride. Go get your bride. And I heard, verse 3, a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself. <laughs> so it's not going to be a temporary dwelling place and dwelling in sticks, right? Dwelling in sticks and branches. You want to know who our tabernacle is, our eternal tabernacle is? It's Jesus. People are, you know, get all worked up about, Lord said he's going to go and prepare mansions for us in heaven. That word mansions, it's in our King James Bible, but, but that just means a dwelling place. You want to know what our dwelling place is going to be in heaven? It's going to be Jesus Christ. It's going to be the bosom of Jesus Christ, right? It's not going to be a house. I mean, how sorry would that be if we had bricks, a brick house in heaven? No, let's dwell in perfect unity with the Son of God, our beloved husband, Jesus Christ, right? So, to tie this in back to, back to Nehemiah, that the Lord, aren't you, aren't you so encouraged and blessed when the Lord blesses in a mighty way in his kingdom? And you, see, and you see walls rebuilt, right? You see revival. You see strengthening and encouragement. But even in the midst of that, boy, that's not really our ultimate joy. That's just a taste a taste of the joy of the Lord that we will experience for all eternity. And he told them, this is why he commanded this in his word. He said, listen, you observe this Feast of Tabernacles so you are continually reminded that we're just pilgrims and strangers here. We're just a long time traveling here below to lay this body down. And I tell you, if you focus on all the pain and the suffering of this world in the midst of those trials, you will, I think I can speak pretty definitively, if you rely on your own strength and you focus on the things of this world, you will be wearied and you will faint. But you know what? We have the reviving hope of the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ residing inside of us. And you know what we need to do? Look unto Jesus, right? And I guarantee you, he'll revive that faith and strengthen you in the midst of that. And, and if your faith, you know, if you're walking by faith and the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of your faith, if that's what's dictating your decisions, Jesus Christ is not looking at all the mess around in this world. What's Jesus Christ looking at? He's looking at the eternal destination of his bride in heaven, right? That's what he's focused on. And if you're looking unto Jesus, you're going to be looking at the exact same thing. And it will strengthen you. The joy of the Lord, boy, that's the, that's the strength we need, right? That's the strength we need in the midst of all of the trials and tribulation of this world. And we pray that joy will strengthen us in our race and walk of discipleship. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. 
Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.